0: And welcome to the Remember the Girls podcast. I'm Emma Bliss, president of Remember the Girls and a carrier of X-linked myotubular myopathy, or MTM, a rare neuromuscular disorder. Remember the Girls is a nonprofit organization founded in 2017 with a mission to support and advocate for female carriers of X-linked genetic disorders, Our sole purpose is to provide collaboration, education, and growth to our community and spread awareness of X-linked women patients and their symptoms to the world of medicine and genetics. We do this by sharing our own personal journeys with you, along with many other brave women. Today we will feature an educational webinar and personal story from a woman patient with Alport syndrome, who is currently pursuing a degree in medicine and hoping to further advance her career in the nephrology field. It is amazing when personal medical history collides with passion and evolves into bigger purpose than you might have planned. Megan Dunleavy has a family history with Alport syndrome and has decided to further her studies in the field with a desire to make an impact and change for all patients of the genetic condition. I have the honor of interviewing Megan today and I am so excited and grateful to be here with you all. Alport syndrome is a rare X-linked genetic condition characterized by progressive decline in kidney function, often resulting in end-stage kidney disease, hearing loss and eye abnormalities. Alport syndrome may be suspected from family history or clinical signs. Many females with Alport syndrome are incorrectly told they are just carriers of the condition. This carrier phrasing is a misnomer and often results in unexpected and negative health consequences. Affected women are commonly undiagnosed, but 15 to 30% develop renal failure by 60 years and often hearing loss by middle age. We encourage all females with Alport syndrome to connect and collaborate inside the Remember the Girls community and with the Alport Syndrome Foundation. I have the pleasure of interviewing Megan today. Megan is an excellent Alport syndrome patient and current fourth year medical student at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. She has recently matched internal medicine at Cooper Hospital, where she'll be beginning residency in June. Megan is passionate about nephrology, genetics and patient advocacy and is hopeful to pursue a nephrology fellowship after residency. Megan, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us here with us today. Um, I would love to open the space up for you to share a bit of your journey and why this mission is important to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I do want to start off just um, with a quick disclaimer um, that the, the views and opinions I'm expressing are just my own. the The content has not been reviewed or approved by my school. Um, just for formality's sake, So my story is not unlike many others, Um, the Alport syndrome foundation put out a survey that found uh, 51% of adult Alport patients and 39% of first diagnosed offspring were initially misdiagnosed or incompletely diagnosed. So me and my family fall into that category Um, and explaining um, my story comes along with explaining my family story because as we all know, genetic disease is a family story. Initially, my mom, when she was a teenager, um, had blood in her urine. Um, she had the whole workup done and uh, was told that it was it was nothing to worry about. She was healthy, she was fine. And it was a benign issue. Um, so she accepted it as that. She didn't have any reason to question it. Um, moving forward, she had her first child with my father um, and they noticed that he uh, also had blood in his urine. So. Knowing her own situation and and what had happened with her past, she was a little bit concerned and, you know, she was a nurse at the time, so she talked with some colleagues, um, had some tests done. Ultimately, they were told that it was a benign issue, nothing to worry about, keep an eye on it. Mm -hmm. Moving forward, um, they had myself and my younger brother, um, one of my younger brothers, and we all have the blood in our urine, uh, the hematuria. And, you know, at this point, it was something that, you know, raised eyebrows. Why did we all have it? Um, but, and this is from infancy. You had yeah. One- mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a young age. Um, and yeah, she remembers seeing it in the diapers. Um, wow. Did like really dark urine. Um, and then with her own history, I, I, I guess she was just vigilant about it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it raised eyebrows that it was all three of us with the blood in our urine. But the next step would be to do a kidney biopsy, and you know, we were three otherwise healthy children. There was no need for that. So, pushed it to the back of their heads, moved forward. Of course, I can't mention that they had my youngest brother, or I would get my my uh, I would get into trouble a little bit. Uh, but when they had him, we were all starting to enter like grade school, um, and that's when the hearing screenings start, and that's when my brothers started failing their hearing, hearing screens. Um, once they started failing their hearing screens, the wheels started moving, and and we were fortunate enough to live near the city, uh, close to the Children's Hospital, a fantastic hospital um, that we were able to go to. and they started working us up and ultimately asked my parents if they would want to be included in a research study taking place in Germany, um, where they would just include sending um, the blood of one of my brothers across uh, across the pond and <laughs> getting some genetic testing done. Uh, so they agreed, they jumped at the chance to get some sort of insight. Um, and that of course took a lot longer than it does nowadays. So a couple months go by and they get the phone call that his blood tested positive for the collagen 4A5 mutation um, that meant he had Alport syndrome. They said it was likely that that was the reason that the rest of us were also experiencing blood in our urine and suggested that the rest of our blood be test, be sent and be test, which it was. Um, and ultimately we found out that All five of us, being my mom, myself, and all three of my brothers, had outport syndrome. Wow. Yeah. So totally a big amount of information to process. um, And I will always respect and look at my parents in awe for this because what they did next was just Gets me every time they began just sending out emails to anyone they could reach any nephrologist researcher that they could find an address for asking for some sort of treatment because at the time there was nothing there was no information and they aren't the people that you just say you can't do anything to um so uh somebody eventually did respond which was fantastic and sent some information regarding a drug that was being tested in animal models of the disease that he was seeing some benefits with and you know it was a drug that is used for other reasons in humans and and has a good safety profile so my mom took that information to my mom and my dad took that information to the uh, pediatric nephrologist we were seeing at the time and she was interested it it was very much so like a patient physician partnership in the decision. And she said, you know, I I, I would be willing to try this if you're um, interested in trying this. And that's how my brothers got started on ACE inhibitors at a young age, um, which I believe changed, like, I, I truly feel altered the course of disease for them. Um, and, it, and it has been shown now that when starting ACE inhibitors at a young age, um, you delay renal, Progression of renal disease um, substantially up to like 10 years, I believe, seven or 10 years, um, which is amazing. So, like, I applaud my parents so much for advocating for themselves. And that's why my biggest thing is advocate, advocate, advocate for yourself, advocate for your family. One of our major missions is to help others advocate
0: for themselves and give them a safe space to do that. And it's amazing when you do and you find
1: answers that you wouldn't have otherwise been given. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, something being in medical school and and having um, people come to me and teach me things and and show me how to approach different things that I get confused about. They're like, well, talk to the patient, go to the patient bedside, ask them, because they're the expert. They're the ones that at the end of the day have to deal with the consequences. They're the ones with most at stake. So if they have something to tell you, listen. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. i they're teaching that that way. It's hard. I see the fine line between both, right? So as a future provider and as somebody who, um, has had to advocate for themselves in the medicine world, you have a unique perspective of that because I find most of the time we are given, we only treat what is visible. We only treat what is seen in front of us. And we, you and I have talked before, but genetics is going to change that because it's going to come down to preventative medicine based on your own cells and your own genes. And that is cool. That is cool.
1: Yeah. It's awesome. And that's just something that's so huge in nephrology as well is that it's a silent disease until it's not until you need to be like really either getting a transplant or on dialysis um, and you don't want to be there. And so genetics is the one rare opportunity that we have the chance to intervene early. Um, you know, you know that you have this disease because it's in your genes, so you're going to be watched more carefully, and you're going to be, you know, starting medicine earlier if you need if you have any signs that you're going towards uh, towards that um, progression.
0: Yeah. Is- now, the the chances of your parents having four children all with the condition is that's a pretty high. Prevalence rate for your family.
1: Yeah, that's um something we beat the odds. (laughs) Um, Uh, Do you find
0: that there is a a range between your siblings of the severity of
1: um, symptoms of Alport syndrome? Um, I I don't um right now. I mean, I do in terms of looking at their numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly, my youngest brother. Uh, has, has better kidney function than I do. Um, <laughs> my oldest brother, obviously he's older and age plays into it. Um, okay. so his is, is worse, but overall their rates of progression have been pretty similar. Um, I guess I would say that my youngest brother has been more stable than, than the other two. I, and he was on, on the, uh, ACE inhibitor for the longest, the longest time. So I guess that would make sense. Um, Yeah, Yeah. extrapolating, uh, but of course we don't have any, I've 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 never done the numbers in front of me, so I can't make any claims like that.
0: Yeah, do you find that you as being the only female have different symptoms than your brothers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was gonna step into kind of um, how I was told about the disease and like where that took me. Perfect. And I think that'll help to answer that question a little bit more. So I kind of told the story of how my parents got diagnosed, but like we said, it was a lot to deal with and they had to cope before they told us. Um, So the day that they, maybe it was the day or week of spanned where they told all of us individually. um, And I remember knowing something was wrong. I mean, we were going to all these appointments. My brothers were taking medicine, you know, you hear them talking. um, So I knew something was wrong and my mom kind of just sat me down actually I was in the pool to be honest I was <laughs> I was swimming in the pool and she kind of I swam over to the edge and that uh, she was like I have to tell you something you know I think you know something's going on but the boys all have this disease that it affects their kidneys and their hearing and they they need hearing aids and and at some point probably when they're 30 they're going to need to get a kidney transplant and i remember just like not wanting to really show my emotions or like reveal, I was very independent, <laughs> so I just sunk to the bottom of the pool immediately. <laughs> How old I'm, were you? Um, I was about twelve. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And I That's so actually a big topic we talk about as well inside. Remember the girls is when is the appropriate age to tell your female child that they are a carrier of a rare condition and. It is so controversial and so personal, um, yeah. but I love hearing different perspectives on
1: that. So, you were 12 at the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is like huge. And it's, I feel like if you were to ask me, it's different for everyone. It depends. You can't ask someone to tell someone something when they haven't even coped with it themselves. Right. Um, so, it depends on when that person gets the diagnosis mm-hmm. and then when you feel ready to share it. And when you feel your child is ready to hear it, yeah. Um, but you're right. It is so controversial. Um, I actually have a daughter who's, she's going to be
0: two in April and she has a 50% chance of being a carrier of this condition that I'm a carrier of. Um, Mm -hmm. And even when deciding when to test her is controversial, like, should I test her now and, and prepare to tell her at some point, or should I wait for her to make that decision when she's 18 and ready to have children? It's such a big topic, but it's, absolutely one that's personal but one that is should be discussed um yeah. so yes so i appreciate you telling me at uh, your age i think 12 is probably a common age where or around a common age where people women find out or tell their female child
1: yeah and that was a, that was an issue with you know when they found out um my brother was older and he was getting to the point that the doctors were pushing my mom telling him and saying, you know, if you don't tell him, we might have to just yeah. for reasons. And like, that's a whole nother thing where it's like, yeah. hold on, <laughs> let us process. Like, um, so it is, it's, it's wild. Um, especially when it comes to the genetics of it that you had mentioned, uh, that part, uh, I I feel very strongly that people who don't have, who are in the situation, don't get a say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because, Absolutely. yeah you know, you never know what that person's going to do with that, with that information. And, you know, with me, it made me want to go into medicine and maybe with your daughter, it'll make her want to go to medicine. But if she finds out like too old to make that decision, you know, there's those questions to consider. And I'm not saying that means you should do it early. That's your own decision, um, to, to cope with and and decide for yourself and what's best for you guys. Um, it's such
0: a big topic.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's huge. (laughs) Um, So circling back now, yeah, yeah, so I, I, she told me and I just sunk to the bottom of the pool and thought for a minute, not a full minute, I'd be out of air, but um, (laughs) it just hit me all at once. I had this idea and I felt like it just like made me jump right up. So happy looking at my mom, so confused. And I tell her I figured it all out. I fixed it. There's three of us, meaning me, my dad and my mom. And there's three of them. We have two kidneys. Did we forget? (laughs) So we can just give them one of ours. And then she started crying and, and took a moment and told me that we also had the disease and we would never get sick or need a transplant, but we couldn't give our kidneys to our brothers. And that never made sense with me or sat well with me. And in my little simplified brain, I was like, you can't tell me that I'm not going to get sick and I can't give them my kidney. One of them has to be untrue. Which one? Um, and I feel like that's just what made me start questioning things and wanting to understand all of the like, inner workings of everything and why I wanted to go into medicine and learn more about you know, pathology, mechanism of disease, um, how the body works, um, and, and something that Something else they always tell me in school I've heard a million times is that, you know, if something doesn't make sense, always, always, always look again, cause you're probably missing something. Yeah. If you leave a patient's room, like what just happened and you can't figure out like what the issue is, just go back and talk to them, find out what you're missing so that you can put the pieces together in a way that makes sense. Um, and it's, it's funny to keep hearing that in medical school and know that retrospectively, that's kind of why I went into medicine is is to kind of make sense of this diagnosis and this information that didn't make sense to me.
0: Yeah, it's come full circle. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Talk about um, the major differences between um, men and women, girls and boys in with Alport syndrome and the whole diagnosis process. Is it similar for boys and girls or your mother had told you that you weren't going to have like kidney issues, but is
1: that an actual fact? No, that is what she was told. That is what yeah. many female patients of all X-linked diseases, as you well know, are told. Yeah. That is not the truth. Um, and that's something that is being further explored in the field of medicine right now. And so much fascinating research is being done on uh what makes someone, um, you know, have a, a more prominent or any you know course of disease when they're someone who's an X-linked carrier in quotations mm-hmm. um, yeah. versus someone who doesn't really have a course like that. Um, and a lot of what they're they're looking at is this this theory of X inactive not theory, this this mechanism of X inactivation, which, is fascinating. And they're, they're learning so much more about it um, now. But essentially what it is, is that, you know, males have an X and a Y and females have an X and an X. And so these are chromosomes. Chromosomes hold genes. I know you know this, but I just want to be thorough. Yeah. Um, chromosomes hold the genes and the genes hold the DNA. Um, and so we have two copies of every X chromosome we have. We have two copies of every chromosome we have. But the difference is with the X and Y chromosomes, they're sex chromosomes. So it's the only one where males only have one X and only have one Y and females have two X's, no Y. So Alport is carried on the X chromosome. So males express it, females have two. And so we only have one mutated, but in order for your body to compensate for the fact that you have double dose compared to males Uh, one of those X's gets inactivated. In every cell of your body. In every cell of your body, yes. Um, So there's a ton of research right now about when exactly that happens and if that changes and what affects it. Um, Is it prenatally? Is it before the embryo is fertilized? Is it while you're still intrauterine? Um, And there's so much new information coming out right now that's really incredible. But ultimately, it's completely random. And we used to think that the mutated one would be the one that gets inactivated. And that's why females didn't express any symptoms. That's why they were deemed carriers. Um, but now that we know that's not the case, that's why it's such variable what symptoms a female has, because they could have in their kidney, you know, 50% of those cells expressing the mutated uh, gene versus if they had none of them expressing the mutated genes, same with their ears, eyes, uterus, anywhere in their body. Um, So that's why it's so variable. And there's really no, um, what they say, genotype phenotype correlation um, between what the gene says and what the person actually experiences. Um, And that's why the difference between males and and females is that males, they do experience um, that, uh, genotype, phenotype correlation. Every cell of their body has
0: that X chromosome with the mutation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to test as well. I've heard because you'd have to test like different parts of your body. You can't just test your blood. You'd have to test your kidney. Some diseases you'd have to test your muscle. Some diseases you'd have to test your, everything, every cell in your body, you'd have to test the different areas in order to figure out like the X activation for, for it. It's not just one simple blood test. I my question really com- was about um, if you could test the mm-hmm. kidney, can you test the kidney? I know that Alport syndrome affects the eyes, the ears and the kidney specifically. Yeah. Could you test the eyes, the ears and the kidney for X activation?
1: Not at this time. Okay. Now at this time, there's no way to really do that. Um, they did try and see if like in lymphocytes, it, it would correlate to expression in the kidney. They did it, um, but it, it didn't correlate well. Um, they did do a lot of studies on transgenic mice um, where they, they had mice with the X-linked output, uh trait. And the only way to really do that was to do an entire um, renal, like you, you, you needed the whole, you wouldn't have a kidney anymore if you, if okay. you did that you need to use the kidney to, to um, explore. There is um, some theories right now that uh, epigenetics plays a role in the um, in the accent inactivation and, um, and like the length of your telomeres, which essentially is like a shoelace to your, I know you know, but I'm just gonna explain it anyway, <laughs> like the plastic part of a shoelace so that it doesn't like, uh, like allow mutations to happen. And so, As you age, your telomeres shorten, and once 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 they're shortened, it it causes different um, changes to the expression of your genes, Um, as well as you know if 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 you go through life and have certain experiences, then it can change the expression of your of your genes in a way that you know if previously in your kidney you didn't have any of the mutated X expressed as you age, it can start to express more, which is fascinating and, and very much on point with the fact that um, as we age, women see, seem to be seeing more symptoms. You know, it goes with natural history of the disease, but as well, um, if, if you see someone that starts to just have like a head dive in terms of their, their disease progression, that might be something going on as well. Um, I will, I'm will, i not as well versed in in this, but I did do some reading on it in the last couple of weeks. And it was, it's, it's very interesting and something that they're looking at more and more as it relates to X-linked disease, uh, x activation, X escape.
0: Yeah. It's exciting to be in this field at this time with all this research going on
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: regarding epigenetics. Do you find there are any more holistic or lifestyle nutrition choices for women in men with Port syndrome that is recommended specifically to preserve kidney function?
1: Yeah, there, there have been specific studies on how exercise affects uh, kidney disease progression. Um, I'm not sure if there's been any official recommendations, but I remember when I was looking uh, into different things to explore for my own research, I saw a lot about the benefits of of um, exercise in 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 terms of kidney health and renal health, um, yeah. I mean, in terms of how it affects epigenetics, I can't really comment on. I'm I'm not well versed enough to comment on that.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting overall. I I wonder if there are certain things that you can or as they do more research will be recommended regarding lifestyle choices it is especially yeah. cuz your your the disease revolves around the kidney
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely and i mean in terms of lifestyle choices uh unrelated to epigenetics or maybe related but i'm just unaware um like yes they they recommend against smoking that's been shown to worsen renal disease against obesity uh diabetes um um exercise they they say you should do eating healthy Um, getting sleep, all these things help to promote, you know, renal health. Um, Yeah. So those are all some lifestyle choices that, that would be very helpful um, for patients. And I think, I think that's pretty well, well well-established
0: as you study the field of genetics, do you see a change in how medicine will progress as genetic testing becomes more standard? Um, And again, we did touch on it briefly, but do you think the focus will move from treating the symptoms as you see it and what you see in front of you to preventative individualized
1: care based on your personal cellular genetics? Yeah. So I see, I hope that that is the future. And I think that it will become something that that, that that is being moved towards, but there is a lot of um, a lot of things that make it difficult, including you know insurance reimbursements, um, different coding of genetic testing, um, not enough knowledge on the genetic tests available. There's been an explosion of genetic opportunities for genetic testing and screening, and all of these things that you know currently people physicians didn't get the education Mm -hmm. on because it didn't exist. Um, So it just makes it difficult to get the education out there of how to order the tests, what the tests are available to them, what the cost is, getting insurance on board, all of that. But I do think that it will be something that we are forced to move towards. and, And I think that's a good thing. I think that being able to use genetics not necessarily in a, we're going to screen everybody type of method, um, but in a method where, you know, there's someone who presents with hematuria, blood in their urine, and their sister, their maternal uncle, and their brother all also have that, like, I don't think it's outlandish to want to genetically test that person. Um, And I think that having that capability would be very very helpful moving forward. Um, I think there is a lot of hesitance, especially in terms of testing women, or uh, you asked what the difference is in terms of diagnoses. And you know, there absolutely is a large proportion of women who go undiagnosed um, just because you know the belief is that it won't really, it won't really, it doesn't really affect them. And then that's not the first patient you think about when you think outward, you think a male um so we are missing them and 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 I've talked to physicians who have been very blunt with me and in the most amazing way I like was asking so many questions about Alport and they were like I'll be the first to say I don't know enough but I'll learn more and they really did they like went and they learned and then they presented a journal club on it and invited me and it like things like that make me so excited um I'm sidetracking right now but that's really what you
0: want is a a a physician that's going to listen to you and be willing to do more research because you can't expect every doctor to know every rare disease, but Mm -hmm. as long as they're willing to work with you and educate themselves, I think that that's a big step.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's something that I wanted to definitely get across as well is that like, I've seen that so much and heard that preach to me is that, you know, I already said, listen to patient, they're the expert, but like also, as a patient, don't be afraid to bring stuff to your physicians because they want to help you and you're the expert. So if you have something and that's significant enough, bothering you enough that you're trying to help yourself and you bring that, they're going to want to help you too. You know, you might need to ask a question, have them say they don't know. Well, if they don't offer it up, I'm sure they they are going home and looking it up. But say like, would you mind looking into it? And can we make a follow-up appointment? and make that follow-up appointment because we signed up to be physicians to help people. And, and it's frustrating when, cause I've been on that end, it's been frustrating when I walk into a room, I say I have Alport syndrome and they say, what's that? It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. But the first time that I walked into a follow-up appointment and my physician said, yeah, so I looked it up and this can be related to this and this can be related to this feature of your disease. I almost started crying because that hadn't happened previously.
0: Yeah. You have such a unique perspective because you see it from both sides now. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love to jump right into talking about the current research and trials being done for Alport syndrome right now. Um, From your medical school perspective, can you talk about that current research that's being done and what might be some roadblocks to progress the studies that are currently in trials? I know yeah. that there are there was recently um, the FDA did not approve a trial. I might be getting this a little bit mixed. You're talking
1: about bardoxalone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You chose a controversial one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. At Remember the girls, we always we always have these controversial topics and touch on as much or as little as you like. Um, but just state the facts. Like what what is going on with that? What was what was approved and what was not approved or what is happening?
1: Yeah. Um, so paradoxon oh, is one that is controversial for many reasons. And many people, many patients have Been very happy with it and have had great experiences and and feel better and see their numbers getting better. Um, It wasn't approved um, due to concerns for lack of efficacy and for a lack of or and for uh, concerns over the safety profile. Um, So the 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 whole purpose of the whole purpose of the drug, the, out, the main endpoint they were looking at was estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is estimated. Um, it's, it's really a difficult outcome to base research on because it's estimated. Um, it's not actual glomerular fil- filtration rate because that's a lot more difficult to measure. Um, it involves like injet- injecting or, um, like a substance and then measuring that. Um, so this is just taking uh, markers like they do a blood test and the urine test and using those, that information, put it into a, a formula that then outputs what the estimated GFR is. Um, and now to show, I, I thought you might ask this question, so I, I have a little example. Um, so the way that a kidney works is kind of like a coffee filter, the glomerulus, which is the filtering part. Um, should be strong, like the the basket, like the mesh basket on the this side. Um, and what Alport really, that be- my best example is Alport is like a paper, um, a paper coffee filter. Whereas like it'll do the job, but if you try and like overuse it, then like you're gonna end up with coffee grinds in your pot. Like things are gonna go through that shouldn't go through, and then eventually it just You know, it's going to keep withering away or collapse. Um, And so when that happens, the body responds by adding another coffee filter in, but not taking the old one out. They just keep adding more and adding more, and then it'll fibrose. And then that's when it's like sclerotic. Um, And so when you have something that increases the filtration rate um, too much, it's like turning a hose up and shooting it through a paper filter. Um, And so there's concern that perhaps that's why the estimated GFR was being so dramatically elevated in patients who took it. There was concern that it may have been due to hyperfiltration, which ultimately can be damaging to outpour patients or, or kidney patients in general. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case. And I, I definitely think it deserves a lot more studying, um, but that is something that people were were concerned about in terms of the safety profile. Along with, um, there are some some instances of QT prolongation, which is something with your heart. Um, but I, I'm I did not believe that that was actually found to be correlated to the medication. Um, so those are just two things that I know were, were documented as reasons for concern and why they, they additional reasons why they didn't want to approve it. Um, but like, I believe it, someone you, Janine had said, um, they are, are working with the company to build a better trial that will more, more effectively approve that. it's beneficial or not.
0: Yeah. Um, it's not like they're completely done testing. They're just putting that uh, acceptance on hold and continuing trials, I believe, yeah. which, you know, it, that's how it should be. Just continue working forward until you get it right
1: <laughs> or get it exactly as they need it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and something else she had mentioned was like the side effects of that particular drug and her think her reasoning is like, I think that it's way less of a like nuisance to have like cramps or something Mm -hmm. than to have kidney like progression of kidney disease. Um, And that's a personal decision. And I just, I think that it will continue to be a personal decision, just like any other medication. I know people with like the ACE inhibitors that don't, that can't tolerate them because it drops their blood pressure too low. And, you know, it's like with every medication. So it just makes it, That much harder when you're working with such a small population and that just means that like you might not have a a, a, um, study that's valid because you don't have enough people to test but that doesn't mean that something works it also doesn't mean that it doesn't like that's the whole thing is we can't tell because our population size is so small so i think it's fantastic that the fda is working with riata and and i hope that they are able to put together a study that truly assesses what's going on. And if it is something that's reliable, yeah, and I, I, I actually applaud the FDA and making sure that it is something that's safe because, you know, just because we are a rare disease population and we do have, that's not reason to say, well, forego safety measures. Um, so I think both, both sides are being pretty responsible and, and I am excited to see the outcome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems promising down the road, um, which is again, like we being in the rare disease community, you don't always get those opportunities to, to begin with. So it's, it's, it's progress and progress is progress.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are a few other things that are coming up. Um, wonderful. So I just had touched on a few of the medications. So the ACERs is to de- the mechanism that is to decrease the Filtration pressure. This is the standard of care. This is the drug I was talking about that my brothers got started on at a young age. Um, and oh, has really, what is it? What is the drug called? Um, so enalapril, lisinopril, they're ACE inhibitors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says I but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. So it stands for angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor and the other one's angiotensin receptor a uh, blockade, um, so they they work on the same um, pathway essentially. Um, and they're just aiming at decreasing filtration pressure to delay um, kidney failure. And then they also have another effect in reducing proteinuria. But there are downsides with like people who can't tolerate it due to low blood pressure, which is is something um, that's ongoing. So other options, something that recently was looked at is the S glut 2 inhibitors, which is a diabetes medication. Um, that also reduces filtration pressure. And the whole mechanism was validated. Well, the idea was because a size work, then S-glue will probably work as well because it's the same. It reduces filtration pressure in the same way, but it focus on, focuses on um, sugar instead of protein. Um, so that is another one that they are working on. And then sparsentin is another drug that they're looking on that's a dual-acting um, drug um, that blocks endothelin-1 activation, which is another um, uh, like metabolite that that um, increases your blood pressure. So sparsentin works on bringing down your blood pressure and bringing down your um, filtration pressure. So and these
0: are all trial, these are all in trials, but they're currently in use, correct? They,
1: they can definitely currently be in use. Um, the trials for their use in like outport patients and kidney patients is ongoing. I believe the S-glute inhibitor is approved um, recently. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to check and <laughs> check myself. Um, and then this one's really exciting, Lademerson. Lademerson. Led- you never get better at pronouncing them, by the way. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, it's in phase two. It's an anti RNA, so it's 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 on the sides of genetics, and it it um, it protects tubular cells by stimulating metabolic pathways and reduces glomerular inf- inflammation, and it does so through like genetic processes. So. It's just super exciting and super cool that they're even going in this direction. And when I first heard about this, I was like, whoa, that'll never happen. But like, hey, here it is. And And again,
0: is this in a trial right now or is it a a drug that is out there or a treatment that is out there?
1: This one is in trial right now. This one's in phase two, which means um, they're still assessing the safety profile.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And then I also just wanted to touch on COVID's implications because the new... Well, not new anymore, but the COVID vaccinations have like made such strides for the like monogenet monogenic mutation like community and the research that's going on into that. Um, this is something that they have been looking at for monogenic diseases. Um, so let me rewind a little bit. <laughs> the <laughs> the vaccine is an mRNA molecule that's inside of a vector um, and then. When it gets, when you inject it, then the the mRNA um, is read by your own body and proteins are made by your own body to make the spike protein for COVID. That spike protein then triggers the immune response and leads to immunity. That's how they used it to make the vaccine. Mm -hmm. However, they can also use that technology for monogenic disease and they have used it in in animal models of the disease where they'll inject uh, the collagen 4A5 um, mRNA that codes for that for your own body to read that and make that protein or collagen and then use that in your body. They're, they're currently looking at, at this type of technology in another monogenic disease, um, hemophilia V, mm-hmm. I believe. And, and if that is successful, then it, it will really propel forward Um, this technology being used in rare diseases, monogenic diseases, genetic diseases, and that's something really, really exciting, that I just wanted to touch a positive of COVID because
0: (laughs) there aren't many. (laughs) Yeah, and it's such an exciting time to be in the field of genetics. I think there's so much movement uh, forward, and uh, this was just one implication, which is awesome. Um, So, From your perspective as a student in medical school and somebody who has a rare disease, if you could go back to before you knew you had this condition, what would you tell yourself?
1: Okay. If I could go back to before I knew I had this condition.
0: What would be something you would tell yourself?
1: I would tell myself to be loud and be proud and (laughs) never stop advocating for yourself and Never be ashamed to tell someone I am a patient um, when they say that it's sex linked or yeah. um, you know, doing more research. And I don't know. I feel like what happened happened. Like the way that life came about is how it came about. And I feel like all of my experiences really formed who I am and the path I'm taking. And I'm, I don't know how much I would really change about it yeah maybe you're reaching out to support groups earlier mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
0: we get a lot of that finding resources and a community of uh people in the same position so i love that thank you so much megan for being with us today we really appreciate all your knowledge and sharing of your own personal journey um again we really appreciate it thank you
1: yeah thanks so much for having me it's been an awesome conversation